Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Turn to Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. The title of today's message is, The God Who Gives Us Our Identity. And this is an extremely important subject matter in the Bible of who we are in Christ, who we are as humans. And you see the problem today in our culture that our culture, who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't know the Bible, is struggling to find out their identity. And a lot of what you're seeing today in this transgender movement, in this gay and lesbian wedding thing, to the point they're just out of control These people are looking for their identity. They think they have an identity, and they are not thinking correctly because they have distorted views of reality that life has caused them. I mean, you think about what's happening now. There are 58 gender possibilities now, according to Facebook. Not that Facebook's an authority, but Facebook is using 58 different gender possibilities Whatever happened in the days of Genesis, you know, one says he made them male and female. You know, those days are over. They don't accept what the Bible says. So you have things like trans males, trans females, agenders, gender queer, gender fluid, bigender, non-binary. And the list goes on and on and on of what people are calling themselves. In fact, I saw this one guy this last week. He was a transgender, whatever. But he said he's also a transracial. So he was a Caucasian guy who said he was Filipino now. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, this guy has messed up his mind about his identity. If you want to use this logic, what if I just decided today that, you know what, guys, I'm feeling like I'm from the Thule River Indian tribe. And uh, I'm, I'm no longer of European descent. I'm a Thule River Indian. And if I felt that way, then I guess the logical conclusion would be to march up there and drive up there to Eagle Mountain Casino and tell the front office, hey, I'm one of you, so I want my cut in what this casino's getting because I'm an Indian and part of your tribe now. I mean, what, what would they say to me? And they would laugh me out of the office, right? But honestly, that's the logic that a lot of people are using. All of a sudden, people can change their genetic makeup from male and female to different ethnicities or whatnot, and that's crazy. When you lose the ability to identify yourself as God identifies, you will go nuts. You're going to get into a form of fantasy, irrationality. You're out of reality at that point in time. To get even deeper in this, in the UK, they are now seeing about 50 kids per week taken in by their parents to sex change clinics, 50 a week. And these parents who are out of their minds are letting little 8-year-olds and 10-year-olds decide, oh, I want to be a girl. And then they're actually having reconstruction surgery. That is insane. That is on the level of child abuse. And even our American pediatrics has said that if you do this to a child, this is a form of abuse. And yet we can't find our identities, I guess, in our culture. 
And it continues to go on and on. And the other thing is if people don't get into this area of transgenderism or they say they're gay or they say they're lesbian and that's their new identity, then what they do is they become cause-oriented in our society. Have you noticed a lot of the millennials a lot of times will be cause-oriented? Therefore, social justice, whatever that social justice is. And they become social justice warriors, whether that's the Black Lives Matter who has been taken over by communists or the Antifa movement or a communist movement, or they get on the bandwagon of this fake climate change. They had to change the name, by the way. It used to be global warming, but now it's cooling, and so they got to say climate change, and it's fake And yet they brainwash and indoctrinate all these kids. And so these kids get on a crusade. And so instead of buying a car, they ride a bike. And just nonsensical things like that, they get cause-oriented because the cause is their identity. Scary. Because the problem is Christians are becoming like that too. We are having a problem in Christianity in our culture where Christians have lost what the Great Commission is about. They don't know what it's about anymore. And so they're going after cause-driven things in the church and they're becoming social justice warriors in the church hey look the church is not to eliminate poverty the church is not there to eliminate diseases like aids or whatnot the church is not there to eliminate illiteracy that's for the public sector that's not the church's mandate those things are good but that's not the church's mandate but yet churches are getting involved in that and they're not leading anyone to the lord they'd rather just get people to read or cure AIDS, like Rick Warren is trying to do. Well, that's all fine and dandy, but if I can read and and I'm cured of AIDS, but yet I'm still going to hell, what's the difference? You're still going to hell. So even the churches have missed the mark because they don't know their identity and what Christ has told us we are and what we're supposed to be doing. So what we're going to unpack today is how Christ gives us our identity, who we are in Him, and it is the fundamental foundation for our Christian faith. If you know who you are in Christ and you know who your identity, believe it or not, it will affect your behavior. Because behavior and belief are correlated. So if you want to know why you behave the way you do, it's because you have an identity that you think of yourself with. Whether that's good or bad, your identity and what you believe about yourself will create the behavior. Whether you want it or not, that's what happens. And so we're going to watch to see what God says. So let me give you the setting so you kind of understand. We're in the book of Revelation. We've dealt with the church age. We've dealt with a rapture. Now we're dealing with the scene in heaven. The church has been judged and crowned victoriously, and they're in heaven, and what's getting ready to happen is the unleashing of God's judgment on the planet during the tribulation. And we're going to get into that next week or the week after. And so we'll get into that. But before that, chapters 4 and 5 give you a picture of what's going on in heaven prior to this. And the main reason it's given is so that the believers of the tribulation can see what God is doing. So that God, they see that God's in control and he's working on their behalf and he's working to get them through this. So what we're going to do is take an application from a future event, a, a future application to future believers, and then apply it to our lives. Just kind of like what we do in the Old Testament. We take what happened in the past and we apply it what we're doing now. But we're doing kind of the opposite. We're going in the future. Because these believers will go through the worst period of time in human history. And this is important in chapters 4 and 5 that they see 
the God who's behind these judgments and why he's doing what he's doing and how he's going to preserve them through the tribulation and hence how he's going to preserve us. So today we see our identity that Jesus purchased for us and our intrinsic value to him. So we have a picture of the scroll on the screen and this is what Jesus was going to take out of the Father's hand. This is in chapter 5. We talked about the scroll last week. This is the title deed to planet Earth. Jesus bought everything back, and he bought the cosmos back by dying on the cross. Not only did he redeem us, he bought everything back so that he becomes the second Adam and the, the new king where Adam had failed of planet Earth, and this will happen during the millennium. But in order to get this planet back to what it needs to be, the judgments of this scroll must be enfolded on humanity where sin and evil are driven out of the planet. And so that's where we're at. And now we have seen that Christ is worthy. He's the kinsman redeemer, the Goyel, to do this. And now there's the praise that follows. I won't spend a lot of time on the kinsman redeemer and the Goyel because I did last week. So if you want to know more about that, I unpacked that last week. I'll just make mention of it this week, that he is the, the kinsman redeemer because he's human and God. He can redeem what we lost. So now we go back into the text, and this is going to be in, in verse 6. We'll start there and watch what transpires in the heavenly scene. It says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders. So we have seen this scene before. We saw this a couple weeks ago. We unpacked it. And again, I'm not going to unpack it. And so we've seen the cherubim, the four cherubim around the throne, the 24 elders that represent the church. And we see God the Father there on the throne of judgment. And so now the situation switches to focusing on the Messiah. And it says this, that they see... Among all these creatures, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, I saw that stood a lamb as though it has been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We'll unpack that, but just, again, the artist's rendition, he sees something like this. I know some of the imagery in the book of Revelation is hard to unpack, but the visions are symbolic, but refer to a literal fulfillment. So as he sees this vision, it is again pointing to the Messiah. Well, what do you mean? He says, I see a lamb standing there. And the idea is the position of the lamb is that it's standing. Okay? This is a position of resurrection. This is a position of victory because he says, as though it had been slain. So you can see on the lamb, he says, that it was murdered. It had been killed, but yet it's standing in a resurrected form. Obviously, that's a reference to the Messiah who died and was resurrected. And now he says, I see it as if it had been slain. Now, what he's talking about is I see the marks of the Messiah's mission on his body, on his glorified body. The marks of sacrifice is what he is saying. The marks of death are still on him visibly. Now, here's the deal. When one day you and I see Jesus and we see him in his resurrected, glorified body, you will see still on him the scars 
on his hands and feet and his side and on his brow. It's interesting, theologians have said the only thing that was man-made that ever made it to heaven were the scars on Messiah. It's the only thing man-made that ever got into heaven. And Messiah will bear those marks for all eternity. And as a constant reminder, every time you look at him, he will bear those marks of the redemption price for us. And so that's what John is seeing. But notice he says it has seven horns. Well, again, you have to be consistent with hermeneutics. And horns typically refer to as a symbol of power, but of government. The horns you'll see with the beast has horns. The Antichrist's government has horns. Horns represent government. Horns represent power. And the idea is that this Messiah that died for humanity is going to usher in a worldwide government that will be perfect. Hence the number seven. It's seven horns means perfection. That Messiah brings with him the next time his perfect government, which we so desperately need. And notice he says it has seven eyes. The ideas of the seven eyes refer to, he says, are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit's omniscience. Christ is omniscient, but also the Holy Spirit is omniscient. Now, why is this needed? Well, it's this, that Messiah is getting ready to usher in all these judgments, and he's doesn't do it with partial knowledge. He does it with full knowledge being God. And also as a witness, the the third person of the Trinity also is bearing witness that he sees all as well. That when Messiah issues these judgments, he is right in doing it. It was with full knowledge against mankind that these judgments will ensue. Let's continue on. Verse 7. Then he came... And took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Again, this is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. But it's the idea that Messiah approaches the Father for the scroll. The scroll was kept with the Father. It was Messiah who did the job of redemption, earned the right to take the scroll. So now it's time that he's going to enact the judgment. So he approaches the Father that way. And this is, again, seen in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus actually quoted this to the Sanhedrin when they asked him if he was the Messiah. And this was what John is referring to. Daniel chapter 7 says this, I saw in the night visions beheld and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. And he brought him near before him. And they were given him dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So the idea is that Messiah is coming, and these judgments are there to set up his kingdom. That's the thing we're all looking for. We're looking for this day when righteousness is over this earth. I don't know about you, but I'm getting tired of watching what's going on in our culture It sickens me. Every time I turn on the news, every time I read something, it's one more despicable, lowly thing. I mean, it can't get any more despicable than what I saw a couple weeks ago. A mother married her daughter. You can't get more despicable than that. By the way, before she married her daughter, she had married her son too. You can't get more despicable. And and this happened in Oklahoma. And this whole culture says, well, well, as long as they love each other, you got to be kidding me, man. 
we're at a whole different level now. Incest, same sex, what's next? Bestiality? Yeah, that's next. That's next. So John is saying, look, Messiah is coming, and in his kingdom, this nonsense doesn't exist. This evil, this twisted, distorted thinking that you're seeing in our culture, where people can't even figure out who they are and what they do, the perversion is at an all-time high, and you can't say anything about it, otherwise you're a hater. Messiah's kingdom is coming, and it doesn't allow for that. It is clean. It is holy. And none of that nonsense exists. We continue on. It says in verse 8, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, these are the angelic guardians around the throne, remember we talked about that, and the 24 elders, that's the church, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, or kind of like a guitar type of idea, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is an artist's rendition of the rewarded church. This is the harp that it's referring to. It's kind of like a guitar. David played this, and he did that a lot of times in accompaniment with the Psalms. It's the only instrument mentioned in heaven. So, you know, you have these cartoonish ideas that it's a big harp, you know, but it's more of like a guitar. But anyway, they're singing praises to Messiah. And notice the golden bowls that are full of incense. He goes, there are the prayers of the saints. This particular subject matter, we already know what those prayers are. We know the subject matter of those prayers because of the context of the book of Revelation. Just to let you know, those prayers are going to be answered. And here's the prayer. Jesus was asked, how do you want us to pray? And he said this in what we call the Lord's Prayer. It should be called the Disciples' Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That phrase, that's what's going to be answered. That's the prayers in the golden censer. The desire... The unanswered petitions of all of us saying, Jesus, come back and get us. Jesus, establish your kingdom. Come back and and start this whole thing. That prayer is about to be answered. And that's in context what the golden bowls are full of. And God sees those prayers and says, not yet, not yet, but one day it's going to happen. Just like the rapture. You pray for the rapture. Lord, come take me. I'm trying to get out of this world. I can't stand it any longer. Just come back for me. He's saying, not yet, not yet, but one day he will answer it. And that's what those prayers represent. And then with the guitar or harp that they're using, he says in verse 9, and they sang a new song. This idea is new is a reference to the Psalms. Now, the idea of new, some say it's referring to the new covenant, but if you look at the Psalms, it will say that God's mercies are new every day. And the idea behind the Psalms is that God always gives new deliverances through his mercy to individuals. And as they sing this, the deliverance and the mercy that has been shown to the church is that they were raptured prior to this event. That's the mercy. And the mercy, the new mercy that happened not only to the church, but the new mercy that's going to happen to Israel is that he will preserve the remnant through the terrible time. So his mercies are renewed 
all the time. His mercies are new every morning, it says, and it's through deliverance. That's what that new song is referring to. You had a situation in the Old Testament, if you remember, with Noah's flood, and Noah's flood is a typology for the tribulation. If you look at Noah and the character of him and Enoch, what you see is something very interesting. And my reference to the church in Israel, it's in a typology. So the flood represents the tribulation. Noah represents Israel who goes through the flood on the ark. And then Enoch is raptured prior to the flood. So the mercy of Enoch is he is taken prior to it. And Noah represents Israel who's going to go through it and be preserved. You have both typologies seen in the Old Testament now coming to fruition in the future. It's amazing. You'll see typologies all over the place. But anyway, he says, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. And again, that's a reference that we talked about last week about the kinsman redeemer who has the ability to redeem everything because of his sacrifice. And because of the incarnation of him being God and the God man, he now can open the seals for the judgments. Now, he says, for you were slain. That's a reference to the cross. That's a reference to the substitutionary death of Messiah for us, for the sins of humanity, right? It's showing the love of God on the cross for lost humanity. And notice this. Here's where we're going to go with the application. And have redeemed us. The idea of the kinsman redeemer purchasing us back from that which was lost. Okay? To God by your blood. Blood is being used as a metaphor. When we talk about the blood of Christ, he did shed his blood on a cross, but the blood is a metaphor for death. He had to die on a cross. He just, he just couldn't just shed his blood. He had to physically die for sin, and that's what it's referring to. The lamb had been slain, had been killed to make atonement. That's the price that we cost. The second person of the Trinity had to die for us. And he did that by becoming a man. The scope of it is that out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. That's the scope. That salvation is available to all who want it. It's provided to the whole world. Every human being had an opportunity to come to faith in God at different times in history. And even in the future, a provision has been made. But not all will accept that provision. In fact, only a remnant will find that way out. And it's not because God's hiding it. It's because they're not looking for it. Narrow is the path and few who find it. But broad is the road of destruction and many find it. So provision has been made. So by Messiah's death, he has made the means of salvation available to all. The church is now recounting that, that you have redeemed us. You've made it available. And, let me add the caveat, the death of Messiah has provided an escape from the tribulation for the church. That's what it's referring to. We were able to escape the physical trials of the tribulation because of the death of Messiah. It bought two things for us, spiritual deliverance and physical deliverance. Okay. A lot of theology there, a lot of unpacking of symbols. What's the application before we move on? Because I want to hone in on this a little bit. The application, it's about our identity, okay? The application is we are so valuable to God. This is his message, what he's saying to us. 
that even when the rules slash law condemned us, he planned a way for us to come back to him for a relationship. That's how important you and I were to him. He could have just let us go into our own rebellion, not send his son, and he would be right in condemning us to the flames of hell. But he didn't. He wanted this relationship, and this is how bad he wanted it. Again, what does this say for our identity? It tells you and I, and you must believe this, how valuable you are to God, that the Son of God would die for you. And people know this intellectually, but they don't actually believe it. And do you know why? I can tell you why. Because their family of origin their experiences in life, their perspective is distorted by what they've been through and they don't think they're valuable. This is all of humanity almost. Now let me explain this. Many people come from homes. This is one example. There's three examples I'm going to give you. Many people come from homes where the rules overrode relationship in the home. Okay? Very rigid, very authoritarian environment. And there was a set of rules, the family's so-called Ten Commandments, and boy, howdy, you better live up to that family's Ten Commandments. Whatever they are. It could be a career path. It could be, hey, this is the way we do things in this household. This is the way we do this, that, whatever. It's man-made rules. It had nothing to do with Christianity. And this actually could be in a Christian home. But these people had rigid rules, and they don't have relationships. And a lot of people grow up in this environment. Tell me what kind of thoughts that person has when they grow up where all it is is about rules but no relationship. The person starts thinking they're not valuable and that they're only valuable when they keep the family rules. Whatever those rules are, that they're not biblical. So these people spend their whole life trying to live up to mom and dad's rules, mom and dad's standards. Maybe it's a career path. Maybe it's all about money. Maybe it's all about what you do in life. I don't know. They're sitting in a pew and hearing say, God loves you and thinks you're valuable. And they say, no, he doesn't. Because in my heart, my mom and dad don't think I'm valuable. Because the rules overrode any relationship they wanted with me. All I know was rules. Or how about this scenario? Scenario number two. The individual that grows up in a home where the parents are checked out. And it's laissez-faire. There's no rules even given to the child. You want to come in at two? Come in at two. We don't care. You feed yourself. You got to get to school on your own. Because mom and dad are taking care of mom and dad. What kind of message is sent to that child? You're not valuable. Because if you were valuable, we would put a structure around you to protect you. Because we wouldn't want you to get hurt. And you might resist the rules, but we want to put a structure to protect you. And we want you to do this. And we care about you. We care about how, if you're going to do well in high school. We care if you're going to do well in college and what kind of career. We care about that. Well, when someone's laissez-faire and they only care about themselves, what does the kid think? I'm not valuable. See how both environments 
send a message, you're not valuable. Rules without relationship, you're not valuable. You do anything you want, you're not valuable. And so we've got a lot of Christians who don't think they're valuable. I can sit up here all day and tell them, you're valuable. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Or how about this third scenario? People who come from abusive homes. What kind of abuse are you talking about? I'm talking about all of it. Emotional abuse, where parents are cussing out their kids, doing stupid things like that. I'm talking about physical abuse. I'm talking about sexual abuse. I'm talking about all that stuff. What do you think a kid thinks about when they're going through that kind of environment? Well, if they're sexually abusing me and physically, I must be of no value. I must be of no worth because they wouldn't be doing this to me, right? Look, you have to believe what Jesus has done for you. He demonstrates his love for you, but at demonstration shows you how valuable you are. You have to change over to believe what he's actually saying. You have to go from here to your heart. That's where the seed of belief is. And a lot of people just can't do it. They can't make the move. You have to get rid of those lies. This is why they're praising him. The church is saying, you did this for us. We couldn't have ever made it without you, Jesus. But yet people don't believe it. Let's continue on. Verse 10. And he has made us kings and priests to our God. He has given, not only because you're valuable, his redemption gives you position. Positions of authority, of royalty. Well, if you don't think you're valuable, you don't think you deserve those things. When I talk to people like that, that you're a king, that you're a priest in God's kingdom, they look at me like a, like a calf at a new gate. I'm like, what are you talking about, man? I don't feel like a king, and neither do I feel like a priest because of how my life has gone. I know. But just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not reality. If faith worked on just seeing things, it wouldn't be faith. Faith is about seeing or, or believing what's invisible. You are royalty and you are a priest. What do you mean by that? Well, again, this idea of being a king and a priest it has to do with if you're a king, you haven't been given responsibility to oversee the care of others. That's how a king works. To serve others. Jesus was a servant king. You know, the funny thing is in our corporate world, when you're a CEO or CFO or whatever, you're at the top of the pyramid chain and everyone else serves you. But in Jesus' kingdom, the king is at the bottom and he serves everyone else. It's an inverted triangle. He lives to serve the others. Is that behavior in your life where you serve others or do you serve yourself? See, the position will correlate to the behavior. How about this idea of priest? We're priests in this future kingdom, which means that we represent God to people. We're in the ministry of reconciliation, of bringing people to God, not just in evangelism, but helping our brothers and sisters become more like Christ and reconciling them in fellowship to get them more like Christ. Do I help other believers grow? is a simple question. Do I help other believers grow? That's a question you have to answer. Or do you just focus on your own growth? 
See, again, position tells you everything. It's a privileged position that we have. And most people, they look at me and they know, I don't know what you're talking about, man. This is the real deal. This is the reality that you have. And you must start operating under it, what Messiah is saying. What's the application? The application is this. Concerning our identity in Christ, biblical reality has nothing to do with what is visible or invisible. What our experiences have been or what others have told us, only what Christ says about us is reality. If Christ is competing with your father or grandfather or your mother or grandmother or a cousin or a teacher or a coach or anyone else, you are listening to the wrong voices. Only what Christ says about you, you're a king, you're a priest in my kingdom. You're not some lowly individual. I have exalted you because of my relationship with you. But again... A lot of people can't accept what the scriptures are saying. King priest. They're going to walk out. You had crazy, Brandon. What are you talking about? There's two reasons, two main reasons why people can't accept their positions in Messiah. Even though they might know it, they don't accept it. Many people, this person, individual, many people have a shame perspective of themselves. A shame perspective of themselves. And it comes from unprocessed wounds in life. Hey, man, you and I know we're going to have a lot of junk thrown at us from other people. A lot of wounding, right? Lots of wounding. People just don't know how to treat each other. They're animals. They act like idiots. They're imbeciles. They're irresponsible. They do stupid things, right? And you know what that does? People get that abuse, those wounds in life. And they start thinking of themselves in these terms. I did something wrong. Something is wrong with me. I'm perverted. I'm messed up. I'm evil. I'm bad. I'm a mess. I've gone too far. I'm hopeless. I'm worthless. That's the self-talk that starts coming. And they start condemning themselves. I really want to parse this out. If you're sitting there in a shame mentality... Because you're sitting there saying, I'm bad, I'm perverted, I'm evil. That's not biblical. We're not Calvinists, as you know. We're not Arminian either. We're in the middle of the road. We're called Biblicists, Traditionalists, Free Grace, whatever you want to call it. We're in the middle. Now, what, that, what does this entail? This means that you're not condemned for being a sinner. You're condemned for sinning. Did everyone catch that? Because a Calvinist will say you're doubly condemned. That you're condemned for who you are and you're condemned for what you do. That's not biblical. You're only condemned in Scripture for what you and I are responsible for doing. Now follow me on this. If we were doubly condemned, you and I couldn't say when a baby dies, they're going to heaven. You would have to say they're going to hell because they didn't accept Christ. But that's not biblical. We know that children, before they reach the age of accountability, they go to heaven, do they not? We all believe that. We're not functioning Calvinists. Okay? What does that entail? The reason we believe in the age of accountability of a child, whatever that age is, is that when that child reaches a certain age, it's not that they simply can make a decision for Christ. It's that that child is now 
knowingly committing sin. They're aware of what they're doing. Like they're going to a store and stealing. When they have the awareness that I'm doing something wrong and stealing, that's the act that gets condemned. That's the act that gets penalized. Did you catch that? You and I are not condemned for possessing a sin nature. There's no doubt our sin nature is there. It has polluted us and it is killing us physically, right? But we are condemned for violating the law, for our actions, not who we are. You have to parse hairs on that theologically. Because when someone says, I am worthless, I'm bad, I'm evil, they are condemning themselves. What biblically you should be saying is, I condemn the things I do. I Man, I shouldn't have stolen from that store. I shouldn't have looked at pornography. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done that. Because the act is condemned, not the person. Even though the acts will send you to hell. No doubt about that. But do you see the difference that the Bible is doing? The Bible is condemning the person for their behavior. And a lot of people won't distinguish between the two. So they keep telling themselves as a Christian, who've been made in the image of God, who've been given a crown, who've been given royalty and a priesthood, I'm perverted. How can you say that if he's saying, no, 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 you're that valuable? Because you don't believe it, that's why. You just don't believe it. The second person is this, in application. Many people then, the second person, have a prideful perspective about themselves. What do you mean? The pride mindset versus the shame mindset, the pride mindset says this, there's nothing wrong with me. They can't admit that they actually do anything wrong. They have it all together. I don't need anybody's help. Getting help is a sign of weakness. I got this one, they say. I'm good to go. I can figure this out. I'm smart. Why would you tell me there's anything wrong with me? I'm good. Those are the two individuals Jesus dealt with in the scriptures. The shame guy, that was the the centurion. He told Jesus, I have a servant that I want you to heal. It's a good servant of mine. But will you please do this? And, And Jesus says, yes, I'll go. Let's go. And the centurion, he's a Gentile, goes, well, wait, 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 wait. I'm not worthy that you should come under my house or my home. Just say the words from where you're at and my servant will be healed, and I'll believe that. Versus the rich young ruler. Good master, I have done all the commandments. What else do I lack to eternal life? Pride. And what did Jesus do to the shame individual? He gives grace to the humble, to the pride. He resists the proud. How does he resist the proud? Law. To the humble, Grace, connection, relationship. The woman at the well establishes relationship with them. Jesus knows how to deal with people. The problem is we don't know how to deal with ourselves. We're having a difficult time sorting all this out about what's, what's happening. Again, it comes back to belief. Notice it says in the Scripture, and then we have it on there, and we shall reign on the earth. This is a collective promise to the church. It's not an individual promise. It's a collective promise. The church is seen in heaven ruling and reigning, and then eventually in the millennial kingdom will rule and reign as well. But it's a collective passage. So let me parse this out. Individually, not all believers will rule and reign. 
Not all believers will get this prize. Yet collectively, that's what the church does. But individually, only those who overcome certain things in their walk with the Lord are able to rule and reign in the millennial reign. They're all kings, but only a few get to exert that power. For instance, I'll give you an example. Not being a good steward of bearing your talent, you will have all authority taken from you. You'll go to heaven, you'll go to the kingdom, but you won't have any authority to rule and reign if you bury your talent. In the church age, when we looked at that in Revelation 2 and 3, Thyatira was promised you'll rule and reign, and so was Laodicea. Thyatira is to escape moral corruption and theological corruption, and Laodicea is to escape worldliness. If you overcome worldliness, overcome theological or moral pollution, you actually get to reign and rule with him in the kingdom. Imagine in your own thoughts, you being able to sit on a throne and have people given to you who you rule and reign over on this planet. Just imagine what that life would look like compared to what you're doing now. Look at the difference where you call the shots. I mean, obviously underneath as a vice regent under Messiah, you're perfectly righteous. You don't have any sin nature. You're going to, everything you say is righteous and, and wise. And yet you have people given to you who you rule and reign on this planet. Imagine that. It's hard for some people to even grasp. And that could be given to you. So I want you to think of that one day, if you do what you're supposed to do as a believer in those rewards, one day you will be treated with honor and respect. I know right now you're not treated with respect. I get that. None of us are. But one day you'll be honored and respected. You'll be given tremendous responsibility. This world is marginalizing you and I right now, keeping us down at work, trying to force Christianity to go underground. One day it won't be like that. One day you'll be respected. People of this world did evil to you. They didn't respect you. They did evil mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and sexually. They disrespected you. In the kingdom, they don't do that to you anymore. People will look up to you in the kingdom. Right now, they don't even listen to you. They disrespect you. You're not worth the salt you're made out of. People will listen to you in the kingdom because you will teach about the Lord to the inhabitants of the earth. Right now, they don't even listen to you right now. Right now, they don't even think you even know anything. People will see how valuable you are one day. And they will know that you tell them the truth. Because right now, when you tell them the truth, they think you're a hater. Not in the kingdom. Let's return to the text. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. Living creatures, the living creatures, and the elders. So everybody in this heavenly scene. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice. The idea that there's actually, there's not a numerical value. There's no million in Greek. There's no billion in Greek. This is as far as it goes. So when you see this, these terms, 10,000 times 10,000, that's as far as the numeric system went in that day. It's saying that I couldn't count them. That's how many there are in heaven. And they're all doing it in a singular voice. What are they saying? They say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, again, what he has done, right? Pointing to the cross. To what? And this is a sevenfold exaltation of Messiah. To receive power, because the situation is going to call for power, to purge the earth of evil. 
to receive riches. All the wealth of the universe belongs to Messiah. And wisdom to carry out God's purposes because he is omniscient. And strength, it's power in action. Messiah has the strength to carry out the will of God. And honor, he should be esteemed and valued and respected. He is in heaven, not on this earth, but one day he will be. And glory, that's public esteem. This is all connected. And blessing, you speak blessing, speak good about Messiah. Notice how our world doesn't speak good about the biblical Jesus. They can't stand him. They hate him, don't they? They, they, don't, they don't care about the false Jesuses. They care about the real Jesus. And then look at the fourfold saying of the created beings there. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that's in hell or Hades, and such are in the sea, the dead that died in the sea, and all that there are in them, I heard saying, blessing, honor, and glory, and power. That word power is dominion, ruling power. Be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And they sing that all in unison. Well, again, what is this pointing to? That Messiah, because of what he has done and what he's about to do in the judgment, is going to recapture planet Earth and give it back to us. Blessed are the meek. For what? They will inherit what? The Earth. I'm giving it back to them. My believers will get it all back. He told the disciples, you get your lives back, boys. I know you lost it here, but you get it back a hundredfold in the kingdom. I'll give it back to you. You get it back because I have the power, the strength, the ability to do this. Because not only am I a man, I am God come in the flesh. And I can do this for you, and I will. And this is why the praises are saying. And notice how every creature is going to bow before him. Look in Philippians 2. It's a reference to Philippians 2. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth. That's talking again about hell. And at every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The whole creation will bow a knee to Jesus. Here's the caveat. You can bow a knee to him now and get all these privileges, get all this honor and rights to rule and reign in the kingdom. But if you don't bow now, you will be forced to bow. And out of your mouth will be forced to say, Jesus is worthy. He is Yahweh. That will come to every unbeliever. That will come to Satan. That will come to his demons. When he forces them on their knees to admit who he is and that he is the slain lamb of God. So you either do it now of your own free will, or one day it will be forced out of your mouth before you are cast into the lake of fire. That's what Philippians means. Because he says, under earth. That's reference to hell. He will make the inhabitants of hell say it. Woo! Wow. Verse 14. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. And so they're saying, it is true. What Messiah has done is true. What he says is true. So you must believe him. We all in here know what Messiah did for us. He died for us, right? But now you have to believe what he says about you. 
If you have enough faith to believe in what he did for you, you have to now go one more step further and believe what he says about you, that you are valuable, that you have all these positions. By the way, these are not the only two positions. There's like 73 or four different positions we have in Christ. They're innumerable, and you have to know every position. What's the application? The application is this. Our identity will be tied to whatever we find to satisfy our needs. Did you catch that? It's tied to what satisfies our needs. Well, shouldn't that be Jesus? Yeah, it should be Jesus. But you start finding out a lot of even believers don't live that way. Well, what do you mean by these needs? Well, it could be simple. It could be legitimate needs or it could be illegitimate needs. It doesn't make a difference. If you feel a need, whatever that is, real or perceived, you will go after things sometimes other than Jesus. Now, if it's an illegitimate need and you try to take that to Jesus, you know that need won't get fixed, right? It won't get met. Huh. So what do we find other things that satisfy us other than Jesus? Well, we learned these early in life before we met Jesus. Even if you were raised in a Christian home, you figured out how to meet needs. You all with me? Pay particular attention about what I'm going to say. If you drift off right now, you're going to miss the whole point. Okay? So hang with me. All right. Because it gets really into the, into the weeds. All right? But I'm trying to help. You figured out how to cope with life. Because at an early age, you were not taught how to deal with things biblically. So what did you do? You did what any person would do, and you don't need to be ashamed of it. You, I did the same thing. I, tr- I, I tried to cope with life in the ways I felt could meet my needs. And what is the need? The real need for everybody is pain. I feel pain. I feel that if I don't get this need met, it's painful if I don't get this need met. And I'm afraid, and it's fear that I can't get this need met. Everybody in this room has dealt with that at some point in time. I'm afraid that a need is not going to be met. Legitimate or illegitimate, okay? That's everybody. So what's supposed to happen is we learn the biblical ways of meeting certain needs, whether it's legitimate or not, and we, we figure out how to cope with life using the biblical traits. But sometimes we don't. So what do we gravitate to? It's real simple, but you'll understand what I'm talking about. People start gravitating, well, money will be the answer to meet my needs. Money will be the answer. And money becomes their God, nonetheless, right? Or sex becomes the meeting of the need. Usually people sexualize their needs because they're looking for love and they sexualize love. And so when they have sex, they think that it's getting love. It's a perversion. They don't get it. But they start doing it early, and they start doing it in their teenage years. And because they're not getting any love at home, they get promiscuous. Because they're out there looking for mom and dad and their love that they should be getting. But mom and dad are checked out. Mom and dad are either authoritarian or laissez-faire, and they can't find it. So what do they do? I'm going to get it from someone else then. And then they sexualize it. And then it becomes a problem. Or materialism. they got to have things to make them secure. If they have things, they feel okay, they feel stable, they feel secure. This is why when you, you see the extremes of this on TV of hoarders. You've seen these people, a hoarder? They're hoarders. You know why? Materialism. 
The materialism makes them feel secure. They're meeting a need through materialism instead of Jesus. Power is another thing people gravitate to. You know, they go after positions of power, and they'll run for office, and they'll go do this and uh, whatever, and they'll climb their way up the ladder for power because they believe that satisfies the needs in them is to have positions of power. And what did Jesus tell Pilate? You would have no power over me had it not been given to you from above. It's all fake. It's an illusion. Prestige, fame, that's what Hollywood plays. How many followers you have on Twitter and Facebook, hey, then I must be, that meets a need. Do you think getting a need satisfied by having 100 followers, you're going to be crazy. You're living in a fantasy world. But yet, that's what they do, right? Food becomes another thing. Food? Yeah. It's a legitimate need, right? But then it gets perverted. And it gets perverted two ways. Starving or overeating. Because the person is doing either one to satisfy a need and a desire inside of them. Wow, you're, you're really, you're starting to get into my dish a little bit. Yikes. Yeah, I know, it's all of us, me included. I get it. But we have to go there. What's the points? Let's get some, some points for you. So if we go into those things to meet our needs, and we don't let Christ meet these needs, well, here's the deal. Identity results, these are the identity results for not allowing Christ to meet these particular needs in us. Not going to Jesus for them. Going to money, going to sex, going to all these other things. Here's what starts happening to you. Happens to me. It happens to all of us. Number one, you start having impaired or distorted thinking. You don't see life correctly. It's all messed up. You get into unreality. Number two, you cannot bond properly to people. You have an intimacy disorder. Have you noticed that it's really hard sometimes to connect to people? It's like, man, I just can't. I, I, there's something wrong with that person. Yeah, because you know why? They're bonded to things that are satisfying needs. They're not bonded to people. They're not bonded to God. They're bonded to things like pornography, sex, drugs, alcohol. They're, they're bonded to a drink. They're bonded to food. And so no wonder they're squirrely in their relationships. Because the only thing they want to be bonded to is an alcoholic beverage. They don't want to be bonded to people. Huh. i got to work now. Three, they start not trusting people or God to meet their needs because they only trust from their experience or experimentation, which gives them relief from the anxiety, stress, or fear. Four, They're driven by a desire to be released from fear of not having their essential needs met. Whatever that perceived need is, they search for something in this world they can trust to give them relief. That could be over-counter medication. What is the thing that's going on right now in our culture? Addictions to over-the-counter prescription drugs, especially painkillers, right? We have a whole population that's just hung up on painkillers, right? Five, the behavior becomes pathological because the thing becomes an obsession and turns into an idol. We call this compulsive behavior. And when a thing turns into an idol, how do you know, Brandon, if I have an idol in my life? Is it going to be a little statue, a tiki god from Hawaii? Is that what it is? Nah, it's a little bit more subtle than that. 
In some cases it is, but in, in other cases it's invisible. How do I know if I have an idol? How do I know that I'm looking to something else than Jesus to satisfy my needs? Because in the heaven, they're saying, worthy is the lamb. He's the one who meets our needs. He's provided everything. How do I know if I'm going to something other than Jesus? Some diagnostic questions. One, how do you know if it's an idol? Number one, you go to it when you're in pain. You go to it when you're fearful. Number three, you go to it when you're lonely. Number four, you go to it when you're hurt. Number five, you go to it when you're depressed. Number six, you go to it when you're in need of escape. And number seven, you go to it when you're celebrating. That's odd, isn't it? That catches a lot of people. They're like, what? I go to it when I sell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, imagine alcohol. So what do people do if they're bonded to alcohol to satisfy needs and they're lonely? Go to the bar. What if, I, if I feel lonely or feel detached or, or I'm hurt, or I'm lonely, fearful? I go have a drink. But then what happens when you need to sell it? It's somebody's birthday. I go to the drink. Right? You see how that works, right? The same thing happens with sex. The same thing happens with food. The same thing happens with anything you're letting yourself meet a need for you in. Maybe it's just simply control. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's whatever. But it's turned into an idol. And if that's not Jesus at the end of this, I go to Jesus when I'm celebrating. I go to Jesus when I need to escape. If that's not Jesus at the end of it, you have an idol. And it could be the bottle. It could be over-the-counter prescription drugs. It could be sex. It could be any of those things. So here's what will happen. These idols will overpower your morals. And then you'll be deceived. And this is how you're going to be deceived. You will equate what you know and what you believe. Very subtle. Satanic. And the two are not the same. All behavior is based on belief, not knowledge. Satan wants you to think, well, just keep going to another Bible study. Why don't you learn the Greek and the Hebrew? Why don't you memorize the entire book of Leviticus? Why don't you go to 20 Bible studies? Why don't you keep doing that? Because more knowledge will make you more spiritual, he says. And you have bought the lie. If you think having more biblical knowledge makes you act different, You're crazy. Because the entire Old Testament was memorized by the Pharisees. All of it committed to memory. Messiah is right in front of them and they can't see him. You know why? Because belief and knowledge don't equate sometimes. Now, you have to have a content, right? We understand that. You have to have some knowledge. But then you have to believe that knowledge. And that's not the same. You have to cross over. So I could preach all day long, tell you you're a king, you're a priest, you're valuable to God. And if you don't believe it, it does you no good. You're what James called a hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word. And if you're playing that game, Satan has got you. And he gets all of us. I bit for it too. I get it. 
for a long time, my early Christian walk, I thought knowledge made you more spiritual. The fact that I could count how many uh, angels dance on the head of a pin, oh, I must be spiritual. No, you're not. You could be a Hebrew and Greek scholar and still be as unspiritual as possible. Hmm. Oh. Write this down. All behavior is based on belief. All behavior is based on belief. If you want to look at your life and say, why am I behaving this way? It is simply because you are believing in something that might be an idol or not true. And Jesus is saying, you need to come to me and believe me. You need to move from your head knowledge to your heart. That's the seed of belief. Now, let me give you an illustration. We'll wrap things up. This is tough. But your position in Christ is extremely important because Satan hopes you don't know it. If you don't know it, he'll toss you to and fro like a wave of the wind, and he will use it against you. Interesting thing. I'm going to show you a video. But let me preempt it. This guy's name's Lenny Robinson. Okay, I'm going to give you an example of this identity thing. Lenny Robinson plays Batman, and he does it for a reason. I'll tell you the reason after the video. Now, the reason we in the United States found out who Lenny Robinson is is he got pulled over uh, by some cops, okay? And he's in full Batman regalia. He's driving a Batmobile, and he's speeding. And I want you to see this, and I'll tell you the backstory. but this is what went viral about Lenny. Okay, go ahead and roll that video. Okay, you get the picture. Okay, this one thing went viral about Lenny Robinson. Okay, here's the backstory on this and, and why he dresses up like Batman. There he is, and he dri- drives a Lamborghini. He actually does this for charity, and this is how it started. Lenny was a very pugnacious individual, got in a lot of fights, went into bars, I guess, and just would start fights for no reason, and some people are like that. They're just pugnacious. And uh, started a... Uh, cleaning company and clean schools, different facilities like that or whatever, but still always had this angst, always wanting to fight and, and just, that's kind of his disposition, I guess, had a chip on his shoulder and wants everyone to knock that, that chip off so he can start something. And anyway, his, one of his sons was having a birthday and the sons wanted Batman to come. And so Lenny decided, okay, well then I'll dress up like Batman and, uh, and do this for my son. Well, he did that, and he went to the son, his son's party, and his reaction from his son and the kids there was unbelievable. They were just loving it, man. There's Batman there, and they were going crazy, and, and, they, and they saw Lenny as a hero. And see, Lenny had always been a fighter, always taking fights and different things. And then, but yet, these kids were like, wow, you're a hero. You know, want to take a picture with you. And it, it just changed him to almost have an alter ego and alter just kind of a, a different mindset about himself, a different identity, if you want to call it. And so what he ended up doing, he saw the reaction. And he says, you know what? I can do this a lot because I like the feeling of it. And so what he did is he sunk thousands and thousands of dollars into like real Batman gear and, and suits and stuff like that. And he, he ended up buying a, like a Lamborghini and turned it into a Batmobile. I don't know how a cleaning company does that, but he did. And so what he would do then is go to these hospitals and minister to the kids in there. 
And he'd go to the burn victims, and he'd go to the cancer patient kids, and he'd always hit in the children's hospital, and kids would go crazy. Man, Batman showed up, and they didn't know any different. They didn't know it was Lenny Robinson. They saw it was Batman. And it just fueled him, man, and it just gave him this, this identity that was different than his pugnacious identity, but he was a hero identity. And I thought, hearing this guy's story, that identity just simply came from putting on a Batman costume. And look what it did to him. It turned him into a hero type of guy. It changed him. Just putting on a different uniform. How much more than putting on a costume than the living God of the universe, our Redeemer, saying, you're valuable, I made you a king, and I've made you a priest. How much more should that change us? Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.